Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. We're thinking, it's like, this day is so far from over. You thought you were gonna be there for a long time. No, not even that day, just, I meant like, more generally. Olivia Beaver started her job as a congressional reporter for Politico on January 3rd, 2021. Just three days later, Trump supporters stormed the Capitol while she was inside, working. Coming up these stairs. After evading rioters through these very hallways and staircases, she ended up sheltering with a few colleagues in Congressman Ruben Gallego's office. This part's a little bit more hazy. The TV was on, and Gallego had a strong reaction to Trump's speech to his supporters. We love you. Gallego just starts screaming the cuss words at the television. And, and that's when the importance of this moment hit her. That January 6th was far from over in terms of just understanding what happened and, and the consequences of that day. I'm Rachel Bade. This is Playbook Deep Dive. Today, Olivia Beavers and I retrace the steps she took during the Capitol riot. Here we're kind of going through a hidden door. I don't know if we want to say exactly where so we can keep it hidden um, for future um, escape, but... Hill reporters like us are used to chasing lawmakers through the maze that is the U.S. Capitol. It's where we spend most of our time. I was going to say, I've covered the Hill for over a decade, and I didn't even know the staircase was here until <laughs> just this moment. And that's exactly why I'm walking around with Olivia today, to reflect on one of the scariest moments of her career and the continued fallout from January 6th. And I speak to one lawmaker who's been on the forefront trying to hold Trump accountable for years, one who in many ways saw January 6th coming long ago. Characters like Donald Trump, I mean, truly sinister, uh, pathological, narcissistic people like that, they don't stop. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, who represents the 8th District, just north of D.C. You're probably familiar with his January 6th story. Senators, Mr. President, I want to say something personal which he told on the Senate floor as the lead manager of Trump's second impeachment trial. Distinguished members of the Senate, my youngest daughter, Tabitha, was there with me on Wednesday, January 6th. He's the father of three, who literally just a week before discovered his son's body in the basement after he died by suicide following a long battle with depression. The saddest day of our lives. A man who was still reeling from grief when he showed up to work on January 6th to defend Biden's victory on the House floor. And a dad who once again was facing the possibility of losing another child that day. When the mob stormed the Capitol, he'd been separated from his daughter Tabitha and his son-in-law Hank, who were with him that day on the 6th. They wanted to be together with me in the middle of a devastating week for our family. But you might be less familiar with his life before all that. I've been covering Raskin's attempt to try to hold Trump accountable since early 2019, when Democrats flipped the House. And despite two impeachments and numerous Trump investigations, he's still trying to find that accountability. Mr. Raskin, just to start out, how are you doing? 
We're hanging tough, Rachel. And, you know, we're surrounded by a lot of love in our family and with our friends and we're doing all right. How has that day, would you say, changed you as a person and specifically your mission as a congressman? That day was filled with violence, conspiracy, lies, propaganda, and an attack on rule by the people. And so I threw myself into the impeachment trial as a way to try to vindicate and serve the vision and the values and the passions of my son. And I felt Tommy in my heart and with me every step of the way. But I have a renewed passion and dedication to get us out of this very scary moment when a fascistic movement has been unleashed against our democracy and when one of America's major political parties is behaving not like a political party, but outside of the constitutional order. In the spring of 2019, Raskin, a former constitutional law professor in his second term in Congress, confronted Democratic leadership with an idea that wasn't exactly popular at the time with most House Democrats. He wanted to impeach Trump. He saw the allegations of obstruction of justice in the Mueller report and how Trump vowed to stonewall all Hill oversight. And he said, we got to hold this guy accountable. A progressive and a geek to his core, he had another obsession that he became known for on Capitol Hill. I thought that the central impeachable offense and the original sin of the Trump presidency was that he had converted the presidency and the entire executive branch into a money-making operation. And this was the founder's worst nightmare. He had converted the position of president into an instrument of self-enrichment. But Raskin got shot down by party leaders. And a few months later, when House Democrats finally did move to impeach Trump over trying to strong-arm Ukraine, Raskin thought they did it all wrong. So your push was really to expand beyond sort of the Ukraine-only focus of impeachment one to make a sort of a story that people could understand and follow. That's exactly right, Rachel. I wanted to start with the financial corruption, which I think was more true to the reality of the corruption there. And it was also something that everybody in America would understand because of Trump's essential nature. I mean, there are thousands of lawsuits involving him stiffing plumbers and electricians and painters. And, you know, some people thought the word emoluments was too difficult. Others thought it was too dangerous to go down the road of looking at his finances. I don't know, but we never did it. And I do fault our side for that. So when we get to Ukraine, again, don't get me wrong. I think that we made the right decision about making the Ukraine shakedown a count, but I think it should have only been one count. Raskin didn't get his wish. And in February 2020, Trump was acquitted. And he grew even bolder after that. The day of the Capitol siege didn't really feel like an extraordinary day for Olivia Beavers, at least not at first. I remember driving to the Capitol on that day, and I had a phone call from a family friend, and he goes, be safe. Um, I think things can get really dangerous out there. And I remembered dismissing him and saying, you know, I'm going to try to park my car in a garage so that it's safe like that. I can imagine getting vandalized, but I don't think anything serious is going to happen. We knew that things were escalating, but I don't think it really clicked for us how bad it was at the time until, you know, we started seeing... Um, people who work for the gallery running up and down and locking the doors and we started getting handed gas masks. Did it feel like Democrats and Republicans for once were living in the same reality? I think there was a sense of 
like I don't want to say like there wasn't anger because you you could see that this really happening on the house floor when people were yelling at each other that you did this there was a sense of collective experience and some of the interviews that I did in the days after immediately like um what they're saying then is so different from what I hear some of them saying now. Yeah, I was going to ask, Yeah, how has that changed and how soon did that change, would you say? I think it, it changed sooner than I expected. I remember in the immediate aftermath having Trump supporters, very staunch Trump supporters, saying they're done with him. They're saying, I don't know how I can stand by him, but for many of them, their reason was what Trump did to Pence. And are you talking about reluctance? elected Republican lawmakers who uh, were telling it, you it this? Could be, it could be elected Republicans. It could be um, staffers. It could be people outside who have just been longtime Trump supporters who couldn't wrap their heads around it. Now there's been various other things that have slowly led to that a lot of um, their minds to start changing. What is the narrative that Republicans now, would you say, elected Republicans are sort of they're sticking with? Um I think the answer that you largely get is that they're like, you know, it was it was a bad day, but they're ready to move on. And that's in the past. Um, so I think they're, you know, they'll, they'll pivot to a talking point about the Biden administration. They'll they'll say, you know, it's already been investigated and they'll point to a Senate report that says this needs to be further investigated. Or they'll say that the Democrats are trying to polarize this event. Back to Congressman Raskin. It's clear he had strong thoughts about where his colleagues failed during the first impeachment. But as the manager of a second impeachment, the one after January 6th, he got to run the show his own way as a lead manager. Now, I'm still reading your book, but one of the things that you wanted to do differently in impeachment, too, was really try to reach Republicans. No lectures, no sort of high-minded preaching about the Constitution that might turn Republicans away. You really bent over backwards to try to get conviction votes and to convince Republican voters that Trump was dangerous. Why was this so important to you? Well, because he is dangerous. And I spoke to Republican senators if they came to talk to me during the trial. And I said, you got to do this for the country. You got to do it for the Constitution. And you got to do it for your party because he will destroy the Republican Party as we know it. And I am more convinced of that than ever. Raskin did manage to win over seven Senate Republicans, a fact he's clearly pretty proud of. It was the most bipartisan Senate vote in a presidential impeachment in American history. But he didn't get the conviction he sought. Trump got acquitted again. I asked Raskin if he had any regrets. He did have two. One was I thought that the senators should be seated not according to political party, but seated alphabetically. And I was also interested in a a motion for secret ballots, but I was convinced quickly that there wouldn't be anything really secret about a secret ballot because the senators would go out and say anyway how they were voting. Everybody would know how the Democrats voted, presumably, and it would have been easy enough to figure it out. And it was outside of the Senate rules. So that would have been a big deal for them to change on. But, you know, some of those things I regret not having pushed harder. The Senate is a very hidebound institution and very addicted to its own precedents and traditions, I guess, the way we are, too, in the House. And they didn't want me to do that. And they kept saying, well, this may not be the best way to introduce Professor Raskin to the Senate, coming up with these wild ideas, like seating according to the alphabet rather than according to political party. 
Do you think the end result, you would have had more Republicans voting to convict if it had been a secret ballot? 57 to 43 is a pretty resounding bipartisan majority defining the fact that Donald Trump did do it, even though he beat the constitutional spread. You know, I go into great detail about why I think we made the right choices on witnesses and we stuck with Jamie Herrera Butler. There's no way we could have gotten, for example, five witnesses for the House without getting five witnesses on their side, and they were going to turn it into a circus. They said they were going to call the Speaker Pelosi and they were going to call Vice President Harris. And, you know, they had plans to turn it into a a typical Trump-style circus. So I think we made the right decisions there. There was one speech that I was prepared to make, but I was always very sensitive about not impinging on the time of the senators. And it was a speech about political party and patriotism and how they interact in our history. And so I never got to give it. I don't know that it would have made any difference, but I sort of rehearsed that speech in the book to show people what I would have said. I think the most most strong sense of like noise was the buzzing of the gas masks that we were given. Back to Olivia. We're now somewhere in the Rayburn building, by the way. Tell us about the evacuation. Should we walk? Yeah, Let's walk. Yeah. Let's walk. So we are currently walking through the house press gallery toward the door where Olivia was taken out with lawmakers. So we were taken out, I believe, of this door, and they wanted us to go down the stairs. Uh, they didn't want the, I think, the option of being trapped um, in an elevator. Does it surprise you that nothing seemed to sort of check him? And why do you think that was? So, um, if you, Republicans will argue that Democrats tried to call foul and scandal on everything that Trump did. So when there was actually a really big scandal and there was actually a big foul that he committed his followers had already stopped listening because they thought that the press and and any of his critics had overhyped everything as him doing wrong when and never giving him credit for when he did right. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a point that some of them have made to me about how easy it was to move on from January 6th mm-hmm. is this, this perceived feeling from the base that Donald Trump was always treated unfairly. The sense of fatigue of investigations. Yes. And so those investigations, the Mueller investigation, and then um, the first impeachment inquiry, right? And and then sure enough, January 6th happens not too long after that. Um, That I think is where you have a lot of people who were already ready to turn away from what was happening. A full year after the second impeachment failed, the January 6th committee is still investigating the events that led to those actions. And from that committee, Congressman Raskin is still fighting to hold Trump accountable. Why does accountability still matter here? I mean, accountability has always seemed kind of like a bureaucratic word to me. But when you think about it, it's really the heart of democracy. If you've got a king or you've got a dictator, the defining feature of that regime is there is no accountability. The leaders of society or the owners of society, they do whatever they want. So democracy is all about making sure that the people have control over the rulers. 
That's what accountability is. Is there also a fear that you might have President Trump 2.0 in a couple of years? Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes without saying. I mean, we're in the thick of this fight. He has not gone away. I mean, had we been able to convict him and disqualify him from future federal office, this would be over. But it's not over. And there are other provisions in the Constitution that relate to the question of someone who has sworn an oath to the Constitution who betrays it by engaging in insurrection or rebellion. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forbids such people from ever serving in public office again at the federal or the state level. You know, that's a live proposition. But at this point, accountability for Trump uh, remains essential. But our problems go way beyond that. It's a question of the movement that Trump has created, which is based on authoritarian politics and fascistic tactics like big lies and conspiracy theories and propagandizing the followers. In that regard, what would you say success for this January 6th committee would actually look like? Success for us is telling the truth in comprehensive and fine-grained detail, a story that makes sense to the American people and a story that demonstrates how far outside of our American constitutional system and outside of our American political culture these events were. And to turn huge numbers of people against political coups and against insurrections, and then to follow through on a set of policy recommendations and legislative recommendations that will allow us to fortify our institutions. As a lawmaker who often talked about reaching Republican voters and stressing the need to do that, and as somebody who, you know, just from covering you, you've you've always been sort of an eternal optimist. But I guess I'm wondering, do you still think it's possible for the January 6th committee to convince Republicans of the dangers of Trump and change hearts and minds when it comes to polls that currently show Republicans supporting the former president? Absolutely. I order all of the books and movies I can about religious cults. There's a great movie called Ticket to Heaven, where a couple of the cult followers who've been selling incense and flowers at the airport and cheating people out of their money wake up and they say to themselves, sleeping on the floor with these tapes running of the cult leader, something's really gone wrong here. Something's gone wrong in our lives. And I feel like that moment of epiphany is going to strike more and more Trump followers. And we know there were lots of people who got caught up in the violence and the chaos on January 6th who regret their participation and blame Donald Trump as the president of the United States, someone they trusted for propagandizing and indoctrinating people with lies. What experience, I guess, have you taken from the second impeachment that has sort of informed your advice to this committee? The storytelling is essential. We were told repeatedly on the way in, we don't want speeches and sermons. We want a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so we told a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then, you know, our constitutional and legal arguments were basically made in defense against ridiculous propositions like Donald Trump had a First Amendment right to incite violent insurrection against the union as president without being impeached. So we need to tell a larger story. I mean, the impeachment was relatively easy compared to what we have to do here because The impeachment was about one guy and one charge. This is about the whole sequence of events, the causes behind those events, and then what we must do to defend American democracy and by extension, democracy on earth against 
authoritarian movements. I think we have to tell people the story of what happened and then be as clear as we can be in our suggestions about how we prepare. So here we're starting, like at one point, like I'm, I'm one of the earlier people walking with another reporter and we're turning around saying, where are we going, where are we going? Um, and they just kind of like keep pointing us this way, I'm like, okay. All we knew is that we were going to a safe room. We didn't have a destination that was given to us. Um, and we're sort of under the impression that we could turn a corner and there could be rioters. We had no really sort of clue. And so to be the first person walking there, we were a little like, is this the smartest idea I've ever had? Probably not, but... Uh, um, let's talk about the January 6th committee mm-hmm. and it's sort of like this continued push for trying to hold Trump accountable after two impeachments, mm-hmm. um, years of investigation. What has surprised you about the work they're doing right now as you watch the panel from the Hill? What surprised me is, is you know, there's a ton of interest um, about what they're doing. And, and as, as reporters, we're asking them constantly what they're doing next, what they're doing next. And then... You'll see them come out these with this information that will just surprise you. Um, you saw pretty recently they were releasing text messages from some of the most prominent faces in the conservative Republican movement, which is Sean Hannity or Ingraham, right? Saying one thing privately, but then spewing another narrative on their show publicly. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it, you could see it happening, but their text messages just seemed like further confirmation of how there was a push to change the narrative as soon as it happened. Does it feel like this investigation is different than all the other oversight Democrats have done before on Trump? Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely different. But, um, like, it's... I would say if you asked any House Republican about what they think about it, they're going to call it partisan, besides Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and maybe one or two privately. Across the board, they don't like that Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, chose to remove Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, who would have also dramatically altered how the committee was going about doing its business. Mm-hmm. So it's it's either, you know, you have this committee that is working together cohesively or a committee that Republicans think is perhaps a little bit more fair because they were able to have McCarthy's picks, um, Leader McCarthy's picks, serve on the committee. What do you think about or was there ever an expectation that the committee was going to investigate Republican lawmakers uh, that were suspected of playing a role in what happened that day? Yes. I, I mean, that's a question that we've all been been watching, right? We've, we know that they wanted to speak to Scott Perry and some of the other Republicans. Uh, the question is, do they subpoena them? And it's complicated because as soon as you, there's sort of been like this unspoken rule that, you know, we're not going to go after you because when the majority flips, we don't like, we're not, we don't want that in reverse. Right. Um, but it also seems like they're getting to this point that seems slightly inevitable, which is they're saying that they need to investigate all corners of what happened. And how do you do that when there were people who were involved in having communications with Donald Trump? So they're sort of in a tight spot of do they create this new precedent that um, perhaps in a couple of months might be flipped and used against them in ways that Republicans will argue is is deserved and and they can do it. They can use the power now as well. Um, Or 
do they try to find ways to go around it and seek voluntary interviews and that that uh, you know I, I don't know if you have any guesses about whether these Republican know. members are going to do it voluntarily but I um oh definitely not yeah exactly <laughs> so um and they just have to kind of yeah. figure out how they want to best navigate that and there's yeah. no easy answer uh do you think that they have reckoned with the implications of you know overturning an election which is what Trump actually was trying to do and what that might mean for democracy going forward. I would say, um, from the conversations that I've had, I've only had one Republican tell me and say it publicly that they regret not voting to certify. But their argument is is that they, they, they wish they had changed their vote because of how Donald Trump acted after the the riot took place and how he treated mike pence it was not that they you know they tom rice he doubled down on the belief that there were unconstitutional practices being used with with different voting there Mm -hmm. there was voter fraud you know concerns about how voting was done in the in the election and so I think that that is an argument that you're going to be hearing from Republicans is they're saying, you know, some will argue we didn't, we weren't claiming that the election was stolen. We were making a point about the the practices, the voting practices that were used that that were unfair. That's, that's something that I hear a lot. Hmm. Is there, and I'm just curious, any Republican that stands out in your mind as somebody you saw that day or talked to that day? that now you see sort of a very different side of things, like a person who sort of crystallized it in your mind? Yes. Um, so um, it's this is unfolded a little bit on Twitter, but um, after the attack, I would say like on January 11th or something like that, I started interviewing the Republicans who responded to the rioters on the House floor. That was Mark Lee Mullen, Troy Nels, Tony Gonzalez, um, and a few others. And... I, it wasn't included in my report at the time, but Troy Nels had a quote that he gave me along the lines of, if rioters had breached that door and pushed through, the police officers would have been in the right to shoot them. And fast forward a couple of months, he was claiming that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. And I said, that's a very interesting perspective for someone who told me this in a week after January 6th. Wow. I got a phone call from him. And we talked for about 35 or 45 minutes where we're going back and forth and he's saying it's different. And I said, how is it different? And he said, they had sharpened flagpoles that if they had entered the house chamber, they would have been able to do serious damage to the cops and to me. And I sent him a video and I said, they're using sharpened flagpoles where Ashley Babbitt is to break the windows that they could have used on the police officer. And there is a member of Congress Jim McGovern, who is in the video still when they are pushing through that window. And he's making claims of saying, I don't know if she saw that gun. And, he, and I'm saying, well, you don't know that she didn't. Hmm. You're, you're, you're creating a narrative and, and you're, you're saying, I don't believe that she saw it. And I'm saying you can't be putting words into a dead woman's mouth. <laughs> For Ruskin, you know, it feels like he's torn between two things right now. And I think January 6th had a lot to do with this with him. You know, he was always somebody who, being an optimist, talked a lot about trying to reach Republican voters and convince them that Trump was dangerous. And, you know, you had some Democrats who 
they saw these investigations as a way to make Republicans look bad, make Trump look bad. But it it was sort of a different, more political motive than Raskin, who has always been very much about fact finding and trying to tell a story and what really happened and making people understand why he thinks Trump is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the strategy he had in the second impeachment when he led the second impeachment. He was very much trying to do that. But it's interesting to hear him say now, I think in our interview, he seems very torn between, yes, we can reach Republican voters and being frustrated with Republicans right now, calling them, you know, a fascist party, uh, a party that is okay with overturning elections and turning a blind eye to what Trump did. It's like two dual Raskins right now, Um, you know, depending on if he's feeling frustrated or hopeful Mm -hmm. uh, about the future of oversight. But, you know, I think that that's Mm -hmm. kind of the, the back and forth that we've seen is there's the, the, the hope that an event like this, you know, could bring people together. A tragedy like this could bring people together, could bring the leaders of the house and the Senate together. And it was definitely not that. Um, I think that there's a hope that, people could reach each other if they think that, you know, the trajectory that our country is on needs to change. But at the same time, there's deep anger, too. And we saw it, you know, happening with um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz in the aftermath. We saw it happening on so many different fronts. And you'll hear one side saying they're guilty and another side saying they're calling us, you know, seditionists or calling us fascists, like, how are we ever going to lower the temperature and be able to see eye to eye mm-hmm. if we're talking to each other like that? Um, so that's something that we've sort of seen unfolding all year is people saying, let's lower the temperature and others saying, well, you're guilty and you deserve to be called out for it. I was just talking about you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's where <laughs> I just thought it was my tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about Six and how you were helping get all of us, helping get all of us to safety. That was uh, Congressman Jason Crow. He was one of the Democrats in the gallery, and I actually remember at one point. I don't know why I like felt the need to say this, but I went up to him and I said, you know, you can definitely tell the difference of who has served and who has never been in a situation like this in their life. Yeah. Crow served in Afghanistan and Iraq for mm-hmm. several years. Yep. And so he was just, you know, he was really kind of working on getting everyone to where they needed to be. I'm wondering, do you think it's possible to really change minds as if you think about oversight you know the whole push for accountability is to make sure people understand what happened to sort of understand um sort of the level of danger that happened on the sixth you know how they got there and the repercussions for american democracy but do you think people are too much in their corners right now or can this committee actually do something i think it's really hard to say i think when we're talking in mass i still think about the the fatigue that I hear from Republicans about the investigations that we've seen for years leading in, digging into Donald Trump and the ones that they feel 
you know, they constantly have to answer to and respond to and defend. I remember reading a book back in college called The Disappearing Center or The Disappearing Middle, um, where people are more and more increasingly going into their corners. And I feel like I've seen that in my time in Congress, mm-hmm. where people are being pulled to one side or the other. So, um, you know, I'm sure that there are some minds that will be changed, but I think it there really um, is a really tough mandate to change a lot of minds in, in, in mass. Thanks, Olivia, for uh, taking me around to all these tunnels uh, and in the the maze that is the Capitol building. <laughs> no, of course. Thanks for coming with me. Yeah. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Jenny Ahmet is our senior producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by The Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. I'm Rachel Bates. Thanks for listening. <laughs>